Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. It's freaking Tuesday. Tuesday! So pumped about that. Also, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that we recorded this podcast last. I, I feel like the podcast is a way of timekeeping and that hourglass just keep the sand just keeps going down and down and down and down. We actually need to talk about aging at some point on this podcast because I think it has brought in such sharp relief. Uh, the aging process. We're already on what? Is this episode 73 or 74, something like that? It's a ton of episodes. I think you're overestimating. I'm pretty sure this is episode 72. <laughs> we just stop at 69 and every subsequent episode just stays there. So I actually just learned some shocking information from Megan after her run. So you get back to your car after your run. Can you describe the scene for people? Because you said this to me as if it was just normal information about someone's life. I told this to you nonchalantly from the yeah. couch and you looked at me like I had actually, you were, I think you were, you kind of looked at me like I had eight heads, but also kind of very proud of me yeah. at the same time. I, I really appreciated that sentiment. It was, a, I was awestruck. I fell in love with you all over again when you told me this story. So I got back to the trailhead and this trailhead's about like 10 or 12 minutes away from my house. Yeah. Not far at all. And I was bonkers hungry. Yeah. Like so, so hungry. I have no idea why I ate a big breakfast this morning. It was delicious. And I probably was, a good sign. I mean, it probably means your metabolic rate is through the roof right now. Actually, I think the reason is, is I didn't run very hard this morning. Yeah. Very proud of that. And so I didn't, I didn't, it's true, yeah. yeah. So I like stoked my aerobic system and didn't over, you know, didn't overpower my hunger hormones. Yeah. And so I got back to the car and I was like rummaging around in the car yeah. and I found a cookie I had bought for Addy Dog's birthday. Yeah. And it was very much a dog cookie, but it looked so delicious <laughs> and exotic. And I was like, I think this is my calling to give it a try. <laughs> so wait, what did the cookie look like? Describe the scene for people. I know there's a picture on your Instagram, but I think it's important that you lay the groundwork for what just happened. Okay. You know, this delicious sugar cookies yeah. that you get at Safeway. So they're like, they're soft. And then they have this layer of frosting and sprinkles on top. Uh -huh. It kind of looked like that just a little bit harder. And on further confirmation, it was rock fucking solid, <laughs> but that's exactly, I, that, that was the kind of vibes I was getting was yeah. just this, like this gentle sugar cookie. It looked actually, it looked beautiful. It looked like a work of art that a human could eat. So what was the mouthfeel of this cookie? Okay. So you get there, you're starving. You're like, I guess I'm going to eat this dog treat that I guess we can, we can date it now. It's three weeks old from Addie's birthday. Um, you bite into it. What's the experience like? Actually, I did not bite into it. Yeah. I tried to take a bite into it at first and I was like, this is rock fucking solid. Yeah. As I said, it was like hard as a rock. I think it was because it was cold also because it was probably very stale. <laughs> so I used all of my bicep and tricep strength and I I kind of like broke it in half in yeah. quarters. And so I ate a piece of the quarter. So you had to put it in your mouth and just let your saliva loosen it up before you can swallow? Actually, no, I almost chipped a tooth trying okay. to eat this. Yeah, yeah. So that was great. Um, I would say it tasted it tasted a lot like sweet potato cardboard, I think, yeah. with like some, maybe some very subtle undertones of chicken in there. That was how I would describe this on a Yelp review. So sweet potato and chicken. Sweet potato and chicken. It, I mean, it, mostly cardboard. I yeah. think I was kind of blown away because it was so hard to chew. So what was the frosting like blue stuff that was on okay, top? Okay, that was actually the gross part. I okay. don't know what that was. Like I can't really describe it. It tasted very synthetic. Yeah, whatever that was, was maybe it was like a, a sort of mousse, like uh, you might get on a fancy French restaurant, or maybe that like mousse is generous. Mousse has a, a soft texture. Yeah. This was also rock fucking solid. <laughs> yeah, I probably because it had been in my car for four weeks and it's also been freezing outside. So a combination of those two is not great. So what was the thought process? Was that like a embodiment of your optimism to be like, this dog cookie is going to get me what I need? Why couldn't you get the ten minutes back home? Well, ten minutes felt like an eternity. Okay. At that point, I was like, oh, it's so long. It's 10 minutes. I was so hungry, so hangry. Yeah. Also, I was just generally curious. I was like, what does this taste like to Addy Dog? It. Like, And I was like, you know, 
there's generally pretty good human, yeah. I mean, it's made of sweet potatoes and peanut butter and some other things that I remember seeing on that. It also looked a whole lot more organic than a lot of yeah. the other foods that we eat. So I decided to go for it. Yeah, it's definitely better than like Cinnamon Toast Crunch or something. Um, I, I, I wouldn't go that far. That being said, I posted an Instagram story with a poll to yeah. see if people would eat it. And like 50% of people are like, yeah, I'd eat that. That's pretty cool. It makes me like have a lot more hope for society. Actually, I remember when we were in California and I used to fetch Addy with the Trader Joe's sweet potato treats. I would often take a little bite out of them um, and they weren't bad. So th th that being said, I can foresee the future, which is I'm going to come home unexpectedly and I'm going to go in the door. And instead of like seeing you like, cheating or something like it would happen in a movie i'm gonna just see you like with a spoon and wet food just like oh, gross. going for it little by little and like you didn't just see that um but i was really proud of you i think it's a it's a big step of like embracing the unknown and accepting curiosity it's I was so cool say, i was so proud of my curiosity that being said i'm waiting for the angry instagram message of someone being like you're a doctor megan you should not be eating dog food you know i'm just waiting for that and also we do not endorse eating dog food unless you're like stuck in the wilderness for multiple days yeah if i was stuck in the wilderness for multiple days i would certainly give this a five-star yelp review <laughs> well your your milkshake might bring all the boys to the yard but also your cookies bring all the dogs to the yard so <laughs> we have a really packed yard that's the most important life skill if i could bring all the dogs to the yard way more important than bringing all the boys to the yard i'm not gonna lie <laughs> so talking about polarized food choices protein cereal that was so controversial yes so we talked about it last week um and immediately got some feedback from people being like oh i do that too that's so cool and i even made a video that's on my instagram detailing how this protein cereal concoction is made and in the context of that video got some feedback of this is the grossest thing i have ever seen as well and also people telling you that it changed your life yeah it was a very good reel though i must say but i was blown away like we've talked about like very sensitive things yeah. on here we've talked about political things we've talked about all kinds of topics and protein cereal by far the most controversial yeah i'm i'm very curious about that i guess food brings out a lot of strong feelings in people um but i still stand by protein cereal we've done it oh my God, every single day so since great. then too it's awesome. We're recovering like rock stars. So really try to embrace the unknown. This is your dog cookie for everyone out there that is skeptical. This is your opportunity. One shot. Uh, don't, you know, whatever Eminem was saying, mom spaghetti. <laughs> I think we kind of have this untapped market to do a cookbook of just like oh. a bunch of interesting concoctions, maybe like a somewhere called pizza cookbook. I'm feeling <laughs> it. Like, I don't know, for recipes for people who can't cook good. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what I'm thinking. Taking a Zoolander approach. <laughs> recipes for people that can't cook good. Yep. 100%. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It's like the reverse of the Shalane cookbook, which is like a bunch of amazing ingredients. And we fully recommend it. Shalane and Elise Kopecky, right? Oh, it's an awesome yeah. cookbook. But that being said, I don't have any of those ingredients yeah. in the house at any time. It's like, <laughs> this like organic tapioca flour. And I'm like, where the fuck do I get that? <laughs> it's EPM. It's it's nowhere. Unless it happens to be in dog treats, we're not going to find it. Um, yeah. So it would be the reverse of that cookbook. And I think it would probably sell pretty well. So like what would be, what else would be in the, like protein cereal would be most of the cookbook would be just for different variations of it. Like, you know, if you have nuts or granola or whatever, what else could we add? I think, so this weekend we kind of had a mind blowing re revelation at Torchy's Tacos. So yes. Torchy's Tacos has been going to recently, just kind of like a Tex-Mex taco place. It's great. And we've been doing these takeout, they have these very small takeout containers. Yeah. And so what we do is we've been layering in guacamole and then chips and then whatever we have left over from our tacos, which usually yeah. isn't very much that we like to be ambitious they to order there. They big servings. It's, that's why we love Torchy's Tacos. It's it great. 
Yes. It's like, honestly, if you're in Boulder or anywhere with the Torchy Tacos, go there, order three tacos, and you're going to run great the next day. Might poop yourself, but you're going to run great. It sounds like we're sponsored by them, not sponsored by yeah. Torchy Tacos. But we create this parfait. Yeah. And it's great. And then we put it in the refrigerator overnight, and it kind of all, like, I don't know. It Congeals. I, I, I think was, that's the word. I, that's the word I was going to say. And then I was like, that sounds gross. <laughs> Megan, we're talking about going neck deep in dog cookies. I don't think congeals <laughs> is what's getting people to stop listening. So anyways, try the guacamole chip taco parfait. Eat it with a spoon the next day. Yeah. So good. So as it congeals, you can eat. You don't need a fork. You don't as need it a congeals. I can't get my mind past that. It, people go into it with an open mind. I have used it for, for my fueling the last few days. I've run doubles off it. I'm feeling really, really good right now. Um, and I think we're confronting something that will change the world. So you can even then take it out of the bowl, which like in our cookbook, what we're going to say is you just turn it upside down like the the container so that it all comes out in one cylinder and then we just drizzle some like ketchup around the outside ew okay gross hot sauce for sure <laughs> hot sauce okay yeah megan is megan is slowly transitioning me away from my uh ketchup ways um we've already talked about this before but i am the world's biggest fan of ketchup i put it on just about everything i love ketchup too but i don't love ketchup quite as much as you love ketchup. yeah yeah i think it really embodies my personality in some ways like ketchup where it's like oh well you could do hot sauce or you could do like some sophisticated uh sauce instead ketchup's like sugar vinegar right in your fucking face <laughs> i still also maintain a little bit of aesthetic integrity with my food and so like i'm not gonna go just like drizzling ketchup all over this like somewhat beautiful creation yeah beautiful is definitely in quotes <laughs> but that being said so we should we should look into that somewhere called pizza cookbook i feel like we could write some fun reviews of yeah. these foods but also shalane flanagan's cookbook very good even though i'm kind of like trying to cobble together ingredients yeah. for the rest of these i made her superhero muffins and they're damn good yeah they're they're actually good uh our shit is actually uh it fuels it fuels you well and you might it's run off it. Yeah, that's so true. It's interesting. It might not be for everyone, but it is it, it is for us. Um, so we also learned some other things this weekend. Uh, we went to a few Halloween costume parties. We weren't dressed up necessarily, but it was a, quite an experience and a blast from the past about... I don't know, social interaction? Like, what do you think? What did we learn? Yeah, well, I think what we learned is that we love groups of yeah. like eight or 10 people. And then anything beyond that, and I walk into a party and my my like lights go off in my yeah. head. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Too many people. Does that bring you back to like college at all? Because I know for me it does. Like I think back when I see a big group of people and everyone's kind of talking in circles, I think back to like, dorm parties or whatever where i would walk in with like a like with a drink and then immediately walk back out i'm like this is not for me it's it's so overwhelming yeah. i i don't know i kind of think of it for me as kind of like a pinball machine so uh -huh. there's like all these different groups of people standing in different corners and i'm just kind of like bing 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 because yeah. i'm not entirely sure which direction to go or who to talk to and it feels like social add that was an and amazing noise by the way i think we need to stop for just a second and acknowledge your pinball impersonation you're bing 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 i played a lot of pinballs <laughs> well when you weren't at parties yes, you were playing true. pinball. yeah yeah 100 um but the reason that we wanted to bring it up is like I think a lot of people feel that social awkwardness. Like um, for me, when I was a kid, I think it manifested a lot more social anxiety where I would feel a little bit wound up before these things even happened, already anticipating how I wasn't going to fit in. Um, but I don't think anyone really feels like they fit in. And now what that's really transitioned from of like worry, because now I have my partner in crime where we walk in together and just stand in the corner. And now it's almost like, I feel like Jane Goodall watching the apes, except I am the ape. <laughs> and I'm like, my Jane Goodall inside my own head's like, ah, 
this ape does not understand group dynamics very well. I just don't know how to do it. I don't know where to, what to say, how to fit in. I don't know. It doesn't work for me. I think for me is the, it's like the depth of conversations. Yeah. I feel like it's very challenging for me to get into like a, a deep, deep conversation in those settings because people are coming and going. There's so much chaos going on. And that's just like all I want from social interactions yeah. along with jokes and other things. <laughs> but I think that's my biggest struggle. But actually what I've leaned on, I wish I had Addy Dog with me in college. Uh, yeah. Like have her as an emotional support dog at parties. <laughs> that would have been so great. Because like she gives me an excuse, it's like I'm gonna pet Addy Dog or Addy Dog needs a treat yeah. or just she's like a good conversation starter. Well, it's also great to have each other. But that being said, if if you don't have someone or you do, even if you do, it's okay to just stand in the corner. That's another thing I it took me a while to learn. Same thing with like dancing and stuff is like no one cares about me, right? Like and not, not in a good way. Like they don't care about me. Like they're not judging me. They're just living their own lives and they probably think only good things about me and i think all of us can construct narratives that can be a little tough and meanwhile addy is great at pulling us out of that narrative as was at one of the parties today the greatest costume we've ever seen which was a golden retriever that had three legs dressed as a pirate with the one leg being a peg that just went off the side. And it this, was amazing. This golden retriever was so athletic. Yeah. It was so, I mean, and I just, I probably spent most of the party watching this golden retriever. Yeah. That was, that was how I was playing human pinball was just like, Oh, this dog. Yeah. It was the coolest thing ever. Um, and yeah. So if you're out there and you feel socially awkward, I mean, we have a podcast. Like, I think if you listen to this podcast and don't necessarily trust us, you would think like, oh, well, they're probably okay in social settings. They like enjoy it. They're popular or whatever. Maybe not. Maybe I was going to say, say I'm looking at you. I'm like counterpoint. <laughs> yeah, if yeah. people listen to the food choices that we just described, <laughs> they'd be like, no, they're definitely socially awkward. Yeah. A guacamole taco parfait is very awkward. Yeah, the kids in the side of the elementary school like uh, experimenting with foods. Actually, you've talked about that before, right? Like you, When you were in... Um, school like lunchtime would be a stressful period for you oh very stressful i never knew it was actually uh, that actually almost exactly like human pinball where yeah. you're kind of like walking around like where do i sit who do i talk to what do i do yeah and i just i it freaked me out i struggled with that so much too i i'm we're so lucky we found each other. also i loved food so i was kind of like i just want to sit in this corner and enjoy the slice of pizza <laughs> and then talk to people so that was that was also my jam too. i'm having an experience over here you're like the person that's over there tripping balls off some chicken nuggets and everyone else is like trying to do things um but the story Story that I identified with the most of like maybe how introversion relates to like a lived experience was you probably heard this story the hiker that was out on Mount Elbert in Colorado so like right now Mount Elbert 14,000 foot mountain it's probably a little bit snowy it's easy to get lost the hiker got lost didn't come home at night so they're out on the mountain they have reception and they got numerous calls from search and rescue. I think it was something like 25 different calls. They ignored every single call and refused to answer because they were just like, well, I don't know that number. So not going to answer that phone call. That describes my existence to a T. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually don't even have voicemail set up on my phone because it's like if someone, I don't have to call them back. Yeah. If they can't leave a voicemail. How great is that? If they text me, I can text them back. <laughs> just don't get lost. Because yes, like, that's going to be bad the, news bears. Actually, I love this. So Search and Rescue had a quote on this. They said, if you're overdue, according to your itinerary, and you start getting repeated calls from an unknown number, <laughs> please answer the phone. It might be a search and rescue team trying to confirm you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much, I love the commitment to the cause. Like, I, I think... That hiker uh, deserves an award, um, though we will give that award to them over email so they don't have to be in person to accept it. Um, so what I also wanted to mention, and this will get us into some athletic topics too, Megan, you are a freaking boss. 
Oh, thank you. Is that, that okay means, to say? That means, that means a lot. I don't actually feel like a boss. Yeah. I just ate a dog cookie and <laughs> yeah. my emails are exploding. Actually, we've been sitting here and it's like, before recording the podcast, it was like, ding, 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 yeah. ding, all these emails that I'm behind on. It sounds like the pinball machine. Ding, ding, ding. Oh my gosh, that's so true. That's yeah. haunting. Actually, <laughs> I should just change it on the inbox. I don't know if I inbox. ruined pinball machines for you or made emails way better. Um, but the reason I wanted to say it is that like, you know, we don't necessarily talk too much about like specifics of what you're doing in your life. Um, but you are a woman that is out there changing the fucking world. So first thing is you just had a paper published, a first author publication in what journal was it in? A clinical journal of sports medicine. Oh, that's so, so that cool. was, it was super fun. So uh, and it was partnering with Strava on in a bunch of pro athletes looking at mental health and COVID. Um, super interesting. Like what was there any takeaway finding that you really like highlight? top level? I think two things. So one biggest finding was we were just looking at the levels of anxiety and depression that occurred yeah. during COVID. And we found five to six times increased rates of um, anxiety and depression wow. during COVID, which I think to me is expected. Yeah. I think at first that was kind of a, a result that was very, very expected, but the numbers were staggering. Uh, yeah. The, and that, that to me values. was the biggest surprise. So like, actually I saw a great uh, jack-o'-lantern, you know, that was carved, uh, you know, like you're supposed to carve scary things into jack-o'-lanterns and someone had carved P is equal to 0.06. That's an amazing <laughs> jack-o'-lantern. How did you not tell me about that until now? I don't know. Um, but you know, they're supposed to be 0.05 or below or something? Uh, no, no. I, there's statistics. Too P, complicated. P-values are very debated. Ideally, they're 0.05 or below, but they are not the be-all and end-all, yeah. as is like the executive summary of epidemiology. Oh, um, my God. I actually remember you were in a lecture get, getting lectured about P-values, and I was like, oh my God, this is a nightmare. It's the philosophy of statistics. And it almost made me like want to quit numbers there's tons, altogether. Yeah, yeah. So p-values are kind of this like universal system that we've adopted in statistics, yeah. but there's tons of other systems and ways like Bayesian approaches and other ways that we could like but contextualize beyond p-values. Working within that world, your p-values were like 0. 0. 0. 0. Yes, 0. Yeah, they were highly significant. On, on mental health. And um, those numbers are staggering. And we're still in COVID. I'd be curious to see how those numbers then would extend. Um, and, you know, I think it's a, a really interesting point, especially as athletes start thinking a lot more about mental health and the society is more accepting of that. And I think your paper really lays it out um, in a stark manner how much these issues happen and how much we need to address them. The second point of the paper too, is we actually got to look at athletes training data on Strava yeah. and we compared data starting January before um, the pandemic hit um, through March. And then we looked at the interval from March to August and we're looking at how athletes are modifying their training. Yeah. And on a whole, the subset of professional athletes, they were actually increasing their training during wow. COVID, which I found, I found that to be curious because oftentimes you think about exercise as this amazing quote unquote therapy for mental health. Yeah. Yet we were seeing this increase in exercise yet staggering, staggering numbers of mental health struggles. And so I think it brings to the idea that like exercise should never be the primary therapy for yeah. mental health. And um, just trying to highlight that throughout the paper. I love fun. that you, you know, one of your main papers that you've done so far is on this topic. It's so badass. Also, I remember when you first had the idea for it and like the genesis of that and you working with people to get this off the ground because you had to multiple institutions, all those different things, boss mode shit. Um, also, you have a you know, great abstract coming out now that's super cool as well. Um, I'm over here, I, I'm, I'm like glancing at uh, what I have on my computer because it's really complicated, but it was done at Western States, right? Yes. And so I, we've done the study now for multiple years at Western States. I can't share the details of this exact abstract okay. yet, but we wrote a similar abstract in 2019. So I can share those details. Perfect. But essentially what we did was we wanted to look at the genetic predictors for bone mineral density in athletes yeah. at Western States and compare those to their bone density values um, as measured by a DEXA scan. Yeah. And what we found was fascinating. So we actually found um, significant correlations in male athletes, but not wow. in female athletes. And so our 
theory for that was twofold. One, we actually had fewer numbers of female athletes. Um, that actually parallels, unfortunately, the breakdown of Western states. Ultra running right now is still primarily a male sport. We need to change that. Uh, but our overall male to female numbers reflected the, the percentage at Western states. And so we had more males than females. Yeah. So women listening, let's let us from some ultras right now. Yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. it. Let's freaking go for it. Um, so we had fewer numbers of female athletes, so we were probably underpowered. And then, but our big theory was that females in this population might actually be overriding their genetic predictors for bone mineral density oh my God. because of low energy availability and menstrual regularity and other risk factors for bone health. Yeah. And I was, I thought that was a, a kind of a fascinating conclusion from this. And I think to me, it really contextualizes the idea of just how important feeling yeah. the body and taking care of the body is because we don't want to override our genetic predictors. Yeah. Like, that's not great. The stakes are super duper high. I mean, if you're like the genetic predictors are pretty strong. And if those are being able to be overrided by behavioral choices over time or behavioral patterns over time, that's really, really weird. And maybe the thing with men is that um, testosterone, as we've said on this on this podcast before, or I've said, Megan has never said this, testosterone is a hell of a drug. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that testosterone gives a margin of error and buffer that changes the game a little bit. And like, I always try to describe this to, like, I've been at the track pacing some pro female athletes recently. And like, I, I kind of, it's, it's so interesting to see the differences in responses in terms of recovery rates and things like that, just at baseline, when you have you know, however many times, like a huge exponentially large number of times more testosterone, it just changed, like, like I do, it just changes how you feel in the context of that. And I imagine that also then impacts things like bone density. So very cool abstract. I really love it. And as I was reading the abstract, I saw something that was fascinating, which is uh, you had used the lasso technique, like yeah. head lasso. Yeah, you were. You saw this, and you're like, lasso was in all caps, yeah. and it absolutely captured your attention. So, lasso <laughs> is a regression analysis, essentially that you use to select variables that yeah. are most predictive of a model. And your mind went right to this. And we were going to be, so we were looking at Ted Lasso for Halloween, yeah. and I was like, we should have been Ted Lasso, but lasso as the the, <laughs> yeah. the, the um, selection approach for variables. <laughs> that would have been so cool. That would have been the nerdy. We missed it. We missed our boat. It would have been so nerdy, and no one would have been surprised that we were sitting alone at the. <laughs> at this cafeteria table. Um, yeah, actually, how what would that uh, costume look like, do you think? Like lasso costume, what would we have done? We'd be very enthusiastically selecting variables. That's true. Yeah, we I just had like variables all over the place and like exclamation points and the Ted Lasso mustache. I would, Next year, I'm maybe, feeling it. Maybe the mustache could go up and to the right, connecting points rather Ooh, than being regular. look at that. <laughs> that would be so perfect. Um, yeah, we also were considering one other Halloween costume, which I love. I mean, it's probably not as clever as I thought it was, but Megan was going to go, what were you going to go as? I was going to go as Vampire Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. I was pretty pumped about that. I, and yeah, I feel like you could have pulled that off so well. Uh, but it was a challenge because yeah. we went shopping in Boulder and couldn't find black turtlenecks anywhere. That's a nightmare. It was a nightmare. So we, I mean, we didn't put a ton of thought yeah. into this, but we ultimately bailed on it. Actually, turtlenecks don't really make sense when you think about it. Like, why are we, like, I feel like you would feel like you're being choked. Actually, I remember. I loved turtlenecks as a kid. <laughs> there was a comedian that had a bit about uh, turtlenecks back in the day that was like, you know, I, or maybe it was even Mitch Hedberg that he, you know, you wear a turtleneck because because you want to wear a regular shirt, but you also want to feel like you're being choked by really small people <laughs> um, all the time. And okay, one other incredibly exciting thing. Um, we don't also talk about our athletes too much, but Megan is partnering. She coaches the world champion OCR male athlete, VJ Jones, who's won basically all the major titles this year. And I think that's really badass on both your and VJ's part um, based on all these conversations that are happening. So one, congrats. I'm incredibly impressed. And two, like I just want to say, 
what a badass team. That's amazing that you two did that together. Oh, thank you. Well, I have learned a ton from VJ. Yeah. I learned something from every athlete I coach, but VJ has this incredible power of confidence and humility that he brings to competition. And I'm in awe of yeah. that, both as a coach and an athlete. And I respect the heck out of that. I, I love, think it's, I think it's so cool. I love how you frame your coaching relationships. It's so perfect. And, and um, maybe something we should all note. It's like, I learned something from every athlete. Here's what I learned from VJ rather than like focusing on the training first. That's so badass. So like what, what specific have you like learned about like training or anything like that? Because I'm fascinated. I mean, OCR is exceedingly complicated. And, you know, I've coached a lot of like female OCR athletes, but have coached fewer male, male athletes. And I know that you've taken some interesting approaches. Well, I think I'm grateful to VJ because he came in, he coached himself for a long time and yeah. he has an incredible background of training theory and training knowledge. Yeah. And so I remember talking to VJ on the phone, I guess nine months to a year ago now and being like, VJ, like we're going to work together and co-team in this process and I'm going <laughs> to learn from you. And that's a great gift. I'm really excited about that. So um, that was awesome starting at that point. I think what I've really been focusing on with him is one um, steep hill proficiency yeah. and then also speed at the same time. And so kind of an interesting combination. We wind up doing um, hills on Wednesday, so steep hills on Wednesday, and yeah. then actually some track workouts on Saturdays. And he's primarily like, I would say like a 3K, 5K specialist in OCR, kind of the shorter distance. Yeah. And bringing that together, I think has been a strong approach for him. And then also just working aerobic consistency. And I think building that aerobic volume under the curve, so helpful for him. That's, it's so cool how you are able to combine like the climbing and the speed. And maybe it's a good lesson for everyone, even if you're not racing OCR is, that working those in conjunction is almost always how to do it. Like if you only work the climbing, you're almost certainly going to get slower. And if you only work the speed, like eventually climbs will just break you down and you can do both at once though, you know, VJ probably gets back to that discussion I was just having about testosterone a little bit in that, you know, he's lifting heavy things. He's a beast world-class athlete. And, you know, you're thinking about female athletes that might like not respond to quite so much intensity as he does. Um, so I loved how you adapted that because it looks a lot different than let's say, uh, you know, some of the athletes I've coached in OCR in the past or, or short distances in the past trained. Um, so was that like an iterative process that you guys kind of developed over time? It was, it was highly iterative. Actually, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that question because we started with more of a classic swap approach. And then yeah. I actually wound up kind of transitioning to that and then also working in, so he's a background in biking. And so we have a, a solid Friday bike in there as well. And then a Sunday long run. And it's, it's kind of cool to see all of that come together. And I think the thing about VJ is he is a strong athletic yeah. talent and it's cool to be able to recognize and see that. And I think continuing to develop this aerobic base as he works on his athletic prowess in terms of like obstacles in form and development yeah. and all of that, it's coming together. That's so so, well. cool. so a classic swap approach that you were saying is more like Wednesday, Saturday, like two, mm -hmm. two sessions then, mm -hmm. or two workouts with one of them maybe being long run and then filling in with easy stuff. The the speed endurance is where I kind of deviated from this, yeah. the classic swap, swap approach. So really focusing on that Saturday track day. So a lot of 300s, 400s, um, kind of that like short speed endurance approach. I love it. And, and perhaps a great, you know, lesson here that as long as you're building the aerobic system in the background, you know, putting in the intensity stimuli that you can adapt to, um, can be really effective as long as you're not overloading the system. So really pay attention to what you're adapting to, how you respond. I think you and VJ as a team did that great. Um, and that's a great transition, I think, to rest days, um, and how that fits into training more generally, because I think, you know, when we're saying this intensity layering, we're also thinking about how do we actually adapt to that hard work? 
Actually, I love that you brought up that transition. So VJ, one of the things that impresses me most as well about him as an athlete is yeah. he's very willing to take a step back. Like, you know, a little Achilles flare, a little flare in his body. He's very willing to take three days yeah. back. But he was also incredibly open to the idea of the classic Monday swap rest day. Yeah. And I think that's been something that's been a staple of our training over time. And it's allowed, you know, we are kind of pushing the, we're kind of pushing the, the paradigm in terms of, you know, that that Wednesday, the Wednesday hills and then the Saturday speed. And that Monday rest oh, yeah. day is such a great interest. And you don't get to be a world champion like VJ is without pushing the limits and yeah. BJ is such a boss at doing that and you know you've been such a great partner for him in that process um and what makes me think of this is I guess it was last Wednesday or something I got a text from Megan you had a easy run on the plan I think and then all the text said when I got back to the the car was I saw something said something about rest day like unplanned rest day and then all caps one text longevity bitches uh, and I think that needs to be our new catchphrase longevity bitches I love it so much. Whenever, so it's, I've recently started contextualizing that whenever I think about like an unplanned rest day, yeah. at first it kind of feels like this horrible, like mushy, ucky, gross, like concept in my brain. Yeah. I'm like, ugh, it's an unplanned rest day. I'm failing as an athlete. And then I think my brain suddenly flips the idea of I'm just adding longevity yeah. onto my career and being, I mean, I love running and I love training and the idea of being able to add longevity in years onto my career gets me excited. Yeah. It's shocking what we see in coaching. Like there aren't any wonderful studies on this. I've heard of data sets back, back there that might validate this more, but um, I was going through and looking at every athlete on the team that is past their mid twenties and excelling and almost all of them had either forced rest breaks or consistent rest in training. Like, especially the athletes that are still excelling in their 60s, um, but in, and also pros in their 40s, it's it's pretty like striking to an extent that might not even be explained by breakdown processes. So that's the fascinating part about rest days is that it's not just like, oh, I need to recover from this training. It's like, I'm just putting all of that like uh, tortilla chip parfait into the future and I'm just going to excel off of that. I was actually thinking earlier, if you do a numbers breakdown of that, yeah. so we give every athlete on swap or almost every athlete on swap, sometimes we flip it up depending on an athlete's schedule, yeah. that Monday rest day. If you do the calculation of a Monday rest day every day throughout the year, that adds up to 14% of the yeah. year is spent resting. And it doesn't seem like that much. Like 14% is actually a pretty significant amount of the year. Oh and that's fundamental to adaptation and recovery and longevity. But I think also too, then when you layer in kind of like three days post-race resting, yeah. um, you know, maybe it's like a, a two week little off season, that number. And we've done that. We've crunched the numbers on that. That can bump up to like 23% in a yep. lot of our pro athletes. And that rest just gets added onto careers. Yeah. And it's kind of shocking that it's the only ubiquitous thing of athletes we coach. Like I know you coach VJ differently, but I know we took a rest day even without us talking about it because we've talked about it before that that is one place where we basically put our foot down and we've had bad experiences where athletes haven't done it. And a lot of those people aren't even running now, maybe for other reasons that we'll get into in a minute. And it's kind of shocking. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things involved here. Um, one, you don't actually detrain in this amount of time. There's a 2021 review article in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research that found you could maintain off of just a few sessions a week. So, you know, you're not too worried about that. And then when you're thinking about building up, this is where the nervous system and the endocrine systems really come in. Um, in training theory, we're not talking about you know, hormones and neuromuscular stuff too much because it's hard to measure, but it is everything in how athletes adapt. And I've been shocked to see that in coaching. Like 
way more than I even expected. And it just changed how I think as an athlete where I'm like, yeah, longevity bitches, as I take all my rest days throughout the year. I think an alternative term for that too could be testosterone bitches. <laughs> for every for males, I mean, males and females yeah, rely yeah. on or testosterone. estrogen bitches. That's true. But yeah. both of them are important. But I think like- Sex hormones bitches. A lot of the studies on this have been done on testosterone. So what are those testosterone studies? Okay, one of my favorites, and this was done in the journal Hormones. <laughs> how cool of a journal is that? There was a 2018 study in the journal Hormones um, that found that male distance runners- um, training over seven hours a week had around a 10% reduction in testosterone levels. And then this was the mind blowing result. Yeah. So male distance runners training um, after five years, um, training hard had a 30% reduction in testosterone over wow. five years. That's massive. And 30, 30% is huge. And you would see, you would imagine that that has a lot of downstream impacts on performance for sure, performance in more ways than one, if we're talking about like, you know, sexual function and things like that. And then also just like mood and happiness and joy in life. And it's one of the complicated things about running is that it is a breakdown process. It is, it can become catabolic, even when you're feeling well and doing all these things. And breakdown is our, is not our friend when it comes to hormonal context over time, particularly over five years. And I think that that's what's fascinating about that study. One year, there's some change. Five years, there's a ton of change. And so when we're talking about long-term growth, we need to really think about how can we prevent that reduction from happening? And I think there's even studies that look at it in the short term as yeah. well. So there's a 2020 study in 21 male athletes that had three months of harder training and found that yeah. testosterone levels dropped significantly before rebounding after taking a reset period. And I think, again, like it gets at the idea of like these little seasons of life yeah. or like rest periods, so helpful for the body on, in many different contexts. Well, that, that, that is actually really fascinating to read in conjunction with the last one in that it does yo-yo back. And so how can we get that yo-yo so where it's not going to the floor over and over? Because while that's in male athletes, in female athletes, as I understand it, that's really hard to measure because the menstrual cycle kind of overtakes some of the sex hormone fluctuations. So like in men, it's like, just steady. <laughs> and for women, it's like, woo, woo, woo. It's like a roller coaster. Um, and so it's really hard to isolate variables. But we, I mean, all the studies on low energy availability and things like that show similar hormonal changes. Um, and that's where rest days come in. It's like, if we can pulse that true recovery in every single week, perhaps we can change some of these values, right? And I think that in SWAP and the athletes we coach, that might be one of the coolest things we've seen is that we see a lot of blood work. And generally over time, we're able to make interventions that prevent some of these like sex hormone cratering episodes, as long as we're paying attention to it in the moment and not just being like, can you hit your workouts? We're being like, rest anyway. <laughs> I love that point. And also I think it brings me to the idea, and this might be a little bit of a transition here, but yeah. I think also when we talked about this on a podcast before, the idea that rest days are an amazing buffer for dopamine. Yeah. And so I think rest days are about physical health, but also equally about mental health too. I know when I rest on a Monday, I get so excited and dopamine <laughs> yeah. high on a Tuesday because it's like that one day dopamine reset for my body is so, so great. And recently I've been thinking about this more. I just finished Anna Lemke's book, Dopamine Nation. Yeah. And we referenced it briefly in another podcast. So good. So the good. way that she has, like, she combines storytelling and science, I was captivated. Yeah. It was the first time, sometimes after reading nonfiction books, I don't get that, like, prevailing sense of sadness after finishing. Yeah. And I was so sad when I finished her book. <laughs> it, made me, it made me very upset. I was like, what am I going to do now? I was addicted to this book. Yeah. Um, but she actually has a, a short section of the book dedicated to exercise addiction. And I thought, it just made me think a lot about this because it's certainly something that we've seen as coaches. And it also made me think about the relationship of that weekly rest day to exercise addiction. I love that because as you were talking to me about this topic, I was like, well, is that relevant to people that don't have exercise addiction? Um, you know, at dinner the other day, we were saying this and you're like, yeah, this is called training. Because like, you know, if you look at training from the outside, especially athletes that are really pushing the limits, it mirrors a lot of these behaviors. It's hard to tell where the lines are. And as we think about it, 
it's important to understand it's not just our body like hormones and things it's also how our brain chemicals are responding to the activities we're doing and so maybe when we're thinking about coaching what we're also thinking about not just like how can you increase vo2 max or lactate threshold or something we're also thinking about how can you let someone's dopamine fluctuations be healthy to support that feeding back into growth and, and how I, I can't wait to hear what what it's all said and how can you help someone create that balance in their yeah. lives and then i also think the thing about exercise addiction that i find most fascinating as well is that there's a lot of relationships with other addictions there as well and the addiction science that supports exercise addiction also applies to other addictions too and anna lemke did such a beautiful job of weaving that all into her book and one thing that i really appreciated that she wrote about was the idea about thinking about addictions on short-term and long-term time scales. Oh, cool. So she often, when she works with patients, she will often like ask patients to think about their addiction in the context of like 10 years, 20 years, 40 yeah. years. Like maybe it's a patient who's addicted to cocaine or THC. It's like, can you see yourself doing this amount of cocaine or THC in 20 years, 40 years? And yeah. oftentimes that answer is no. Yeah. And I think that allows patients to bring themselves back to the present moment and be like, well, if I'm not going to be doing this in 20 years, I should probably just quit now. Or if in the case of Colorado residents and THC, Yes, very much so. Yes, exponential growth. Um, yeah, that, that's interesting to think about with exercise addiction and long-term habits. I mean, I think the weird part is most people are probably going to want to be exercising long-term, right? And that's that was what I was most curious about was the idea that like if you ask me like, would you want Megan? Do you want to be substantially like dedicating a big chunk of your day to exercise in forty years? So the answer is a resounding yes. Like yeah. I want to be spending a lot of hours a day exercising in and, forty years. And you know what's so fascinating? I'm just thinking about this now as I was saying the topic earlier about the bad experiences of athletes that refuse to take rest days, some of them are not running now already, like, you know, not injury induced or whatever. And it probably shows that what I was doing is running into a little bit of uh, exercise addiction without even realizing it. And it made me a worse coach because I was like training wise, you need to rest. And in what I should have been saying is let's work with a therapist on this topic. Um, so long-term that's long-term. And then there's also short-term. Right? And then yeah, short-term is thinking about how can I like, put one foot forward in terms of being vigilant about this day to day. And so like it's combining the short term vigilance with the long term contextualization and bringing that together. And my mind was when I was like, that is such a cool approach. But I think what I thought about for exercise addiction, just as you just talked about, yeah. was the idea of exercise is good for us. Yeah. It's freaking awesome. It's fun. It's community. And how do you actually define when it's too much? That can be something that's challenging and something that's highly individual and unique. Like yeah. me exercising 12, 13 hours a week might be an exercise addiction for someone else, but it doesn't feel like an exercise addiction for me. And that's why I think it's, it can be so difficult to grapple with. Or maybe with. it has little elements of it, like little, like a sprinkle of saffron uh, <laughs> in there for all of us that might, it might be playing a role. And I'm really fascinated to hear how you think this fits into an athletic life. Um, so, you know, what is your framework that you think about this with? And I have, I kind of phrased four different questions. And this was kind of by themes that Anna Lemke wove throughout her book. And the first one being is like, what's your ability to restore homeostasis with exercise? And by that, I mean, like, if I came to an athlete and said, we're going to rest every Monday yeah. of a week, are you comfortable doing that? And that's for performance benefits. Or maybe you're dealing with an injury and it's imperative that we take a week off in terms of long-term performance. Like, yeah. Could you actually do that? And I think that's like an important question for athletes to ask themselves is, like, what's your ability to restore homeostasis with exercise? And I would say 98% of the athletes I coach, 100% willing to do that. Yeah. And it's really about like, like contextualizing that. Well, I mean, maybe not 98% have 100% willingness. It's like 98% have 75% willingness. That's true. And that that's gets true. Them over the edge. Because I think if someone came to me and said that, I'd be like, hmm, that sounds pretty terrible. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe I could do that, especially if it's for, for performance. So I think- Describe your rationale in the case- in the uh, context of 11 to 16 studies, which, you know, we have, we have a lot of that out there, but it's, it's very interesting to think about. And I think as athletes are thinking about resting and taking steps back, remember that in 
practicing non-resistance with that, you're also indulging like the good parts of like long-term health in this process, I think are really important. I think the the second point is the idea of, does it take away from major life enjoyment? Yeah. And I think this is something that, and actually Anna Lemke brought in these mouse studies. Into, yeah. The mouse studies actually had a way of bringing light to these topics in a way that was both like humorous and ridiculous, but also pointed out like how important these so topics are. So I can't wait to hear these mouse studies because to me, when you said this to me the first time, I was like, that is wildly cool. Uh, so go for it. Okay. So mice placed in a complex maze of 230 meters of tunnels, including water, food, digging material, and nests. In other words, a big area with a lot of cool stuff to do, as well as a running wheel, will spend much of their time on the running wheel and leave large segments of the maze unexplored. Anna Lemke wrote yeah. that about the mouse study. So basically, mice were just neglecting a lot of the like cool, fun, different world that they had just to run on the running wheel. And I think so there's also an interesting balance there because as athletes, we have sacrifices that we have yeah. to make, but it's like, where does it become a compulsion versus a sacrifice? Yeah, it's really, it makes me pause and think a little bit too, because obviously my life sometimes ends, ends up being planned down to the minute, um, not planned in advance, planned after, like planned in the, in the moment. And as a result, I'm probably missing out on some things, but I choose that at least. Like that is something that I willingly choose and I'm going in with eyes wide open. That maybe that's why we differ from mice is the mice are just like, wheel must run. Um, and you know, humans, we can make that decision day to day. Also too, for me, I feel like I get a lot of the like complexity and diversity in the world through yeah. running. So I think there's also that element of it too. It's community, it's diversity, it's fun. It's all of these different elements layered into running in a way that feels fair healthy. point. What would I do? Go to a party and stand in the corner. <laughs> exactly. Like, perhaps exactly. running on trails is good for me. The third point is how how does it impact health and performance? And I read this study on yeah. mice and my mind was blown. And so Anna Lemke writes, cage rodents given access to a running wheel will run until their tails are permanently curved upwards and back towards their head in the shape of the running wheel. The smaller the wheel, the sharper the curve of the tail. In some cases, rats will run until they die. And she's referring to rats who are addicted to exercise, or in this case, addicted to running on the wheel. And yeah. it's pretty wild to think about them changing the morphology of their body to the running wheel. <laughs> and I think humans do that with exercise addiction on a cellular level in yeah. a way that I think, actually, I think the challenging thing about exercise addiction is that I think initially in performance, it can be rewarded. Yeah. And then in the long term, it becomes devastating well, for performance because the body just breaks down. I'm not sure. Maybe those mice even perform better because they're, <laughs> they're kind of, actually, it reminds me, I'm like thinking of Instagram models. Well, you know, that look where they're looking over their outside elbow, they're all, their bodies are actually going to become like that over time. It's going to be really rough. Um, and it, maybe a similarity would be like how runners change their bodies at all or try to hack their bodies. Like when we're thinking about the University of Oregon, they're like last week and we're talking about them, they're essentially turning, trying to turn people into mice with curved spines. And it's, there's a reason that that's a terrible idea. Wow. I hadn't thought about that. And the yeah. fact that you wove those two together, I'm sitting here just absolutely blown away by you're, that. You're fact. talking about the Instagram model comment, right? <laughs> <laughs> the butt model comment was really profound, David. Good job. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think that it's something to really think about. Like performance and health are related, but not the same. And when we talk about things like rest days, we're talking about how can we intertwine those in ways that do feedback long-term because performance sacrificing health ends up means you'll end up getting neither eventually. 
Um, we want performance with health because that makes life way more fun and you don't have to go down the way of the curved rats. And I think the fourth point, and this to me, I think is something that I've seen a lot in athletes who may suffer from exercise addiction is the idea of like, are you trying to escape something? Mm -hmm. Or like, is this trying to fill in for something in life? Or even is this a replacement addiction? I think yeah. the cross between alcohol addiction, drug addiction, and running addiction is pretty high in the ultra running world. And I think really sitting down with like a therapist and diving into <laughs> all of this is the path forward. But Anna Lemke, great, great quote on this. And this is actually how, when it, this is one of the closing paragraphs of her book. She said, I urge you to find a way to immerse yourself fully in the life that you've been given to stop running from whatever you're trying to escape and instead to stop and turn and face whatever it is. Then I dare you to walk towards it. In this way, the world may reveal itself to you as something magical and awe-inspiring that does not require escape. Instead, the world may become something worth paying attention to. Uh, that was, I read that actually, I was sitting in the bathtub reading <laughs> reading Dopamine yeah. Nation and I read that and I, I sat there like, wow, <laughs> that is some mind bomb right there. That is so cool. So, you know, move towards that thing. Um, that is amazing. And I'm like tempted to make a joke about the Instagram models that are looking over their shoulders. It's like, turn around, move towards that camera, um, twerk in that direction. But yeah, I mean, that's so powerful and something we see all the time in coaching, you know, it gives us this window into not necessarily understanding where people's motivations come from at first. And over the course of years, interacting with someone every single day, you get an understanding that these motivations sometimes do like mere negative things that have been in their past. And, you know, maybe that can evolve into somewhere really healthy. Um, but the worry is like, what are, what does that do to a soul long-term, you know? And I think for me, athletes that have had exercise addiction, those can actually be the most challenging coach athlete relationships yeah. for me, because in some sense, I do feel like an enabler in that situation. Sure. And that's something that I feel as a burden. And I think the way that I've gotten around that is the idea of radical honesty of just yeah. being open and honest with athletes. Like, is this in, in a loving way? Is this something that you suffer from? Is this a tendency that you might have? But I think actually an incredible path forward for, for athletes that may be struggling with this is kind of looking at the points of AA, which I think yeah, there's so 12 good. steps of AA. And I think actually those 12 steps of AA apply to like a life, a really well-lived life. Yeah. Like if you go through them, it's like, this is awesome. This is a great form framework, no matter if you have an addiction or not. And I think the three that stand out to me the most are radical honesty, yeah. love and humility, and just like embracing those in that context. And wow, like, I feel like that's a great path forward. So here's a question or a topic that off this that is interesting to me, at least, is when I notice this, I also have the realization that radical honesty might lead to a pushback uh, that makes me a bad guy and that causes major issues, might even dismantle the coaching relationship at all. Um, in that by doing this, I might be running into things that I don't truly understand and cause harm, you know, or not cause harm, but remove myself from the equation altogether. And that has happened before. So what, what do you say to some, like me in that situation? Um, or what should I, how should I reframe my actions when I'm like, I just want to help. And it's like, but you, you know, in that person's like, fuck you no more. <laughs> like, what do you say about that? I struggle with that. Yeah. I struggle with that so hard too, as a coach, I think for me, it gets down to the idea of even though that person is pushing back against you and sometimes yeah. saying things like, fuck you, or like, this is not, that doesn't apply, like, it doesn't align with their worldview or what they want yeah. from you as a coach. You giving them the radical honesty is what's best for them in, yeah. you know, a couple months, a couple years. And sometimes actually, I mean, this makes me think of emails that we've received from athletes who may have left coaching because yeah. of an exercise addiction and then send an email that's like exceedingly apologetic. And I think those emails are so, they're so instructive to me as a coach. Yeah. Um, but also I think it makes me think about the idea that like, if someone is dealing with 
an issue and they have to make amends. It's like, it's so powerful to the people that receive those amends. Yeah. 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 And it gets back to forgiveness more generally, just being so open with forgiveness. Okay. I'm going to commit to making sure I I do this, not just in this topic sometimes, but I'm like, if I say what this athlete really needs to hear, they're going to hate me. And if they hate me, like I'm not going to be able to help anymore, at least temporarily and maybe forever. And um, I guess though, then I look some at some of my most meaningful relationships and it comes from a place of like, okay, I'm going to say this, this is going to cause a bunch of shit and we're going to work through it and things are going to get better. Um, so big takeaway, take a rest days. That's really cool. But also take things easy. Listen to your body. I mean, so much of this can become, um, you know, the rats running around the wheel till our spines turn off. And instead it's like, let's try to, let's try to really embody that healthy outlook on it. And I think that really comes in embracing rest but also in embracing imperfection and that process along the way, which is our segue to our hero of the week, which we're going to say just on this episode, Mike Hagedone. So he visited our, our house last week and he's like the best guy in the world. He, I truly love this man. He's incredible. He was so delightful. Also, he brought us delicious brownies and granola yeah. from Michigan. And I was like, even more the best person in the world. I know. Yeah. It's like, I'm being trained like one of those mice. I get the reward from meeting him and he automatically like, causes this dopamine storm every single time I even think about him. Um, but so Mike wrote this incredible article in Science Magazine. Um, he followed it up with another article in Iron Far. And essentially, Actually, it's all about his journey with mental health in his PhD program. Um, so to tell the whole story in a minute, he started his PhD at Stanford in 2015, um, is in very hard sciences. I'm not going to try to describe it because I've read every one of his papers and I still barely understand it, even though the most well-written papers ever, is just a little above my head. Um, and so he was really focused on results at that, after, at that time. And he left after mental health struggles. And to flash forward to now, so that you know how great this story ends, he was visiting Colorado at, to celebrate um, his PhD after his dissertation defense. So I was at, I intended on Zoom, his dissertation defense. There were 200 attendees at this thing on Zoom, most of which had no connection to Michigan uh, immunology or whatever. What a loved human. It is. It was one of the coolest things. I was getting chills. People were crying left and right at, at, at the end. How amazing is that? Also, what you described to me too, I couldn't go because I had a meeting. I was very sad. Yeah. But there was also like multiple people within the windows on Zoom. So yeah. some of them would have like four people yeah. in one Zoom window. And so there were like, there was one window I remember very specifically and a couple that were like people that were probably in their seventies or eighties just sitting there like, and they didn't look like professors. I was like, that's pretty cool. I, I'm imagining it's just people Mike has met in the context of his life that that joined him for his uh, his dissertation. Um, but within his articles, he had a bunch of interesting comments that relate to some of these topics where it's like, you get caught up in results chasing, the types of things that you might see with someone exercise addiction or chasing um, you know, a race performance or something like that. And he had this in his PhD and not only overcame it, helped tons of other people overcome it too. Um, so do you want to read both of those or one of them? How do you want to do this? Let's read the one on self-acceptance. So this is Perfect. beautiful. So Mike Hagelnown wrote, and this was for Iron Far. He wrote in a just kind of concept about self-acceptance and how he worked through his PhD journey. He said, six years ago, I began my doctoral work with delusions of grandeur. My next chapter would be marked with scientific achievement, contribution, and recognition. All of this, I was certain, and had been in an incredibly meaningful period of my life, but not for any of the aforementioned reasons. Instead, this chapter has been about understanding and accepting who I am, warts and all, because I am imperfect, and you are too. 
Yeah. How cool is that? Like accepting imperfection is what he had to do. And for him, that imperfection manifested in like severe mental health struggles. And um, it led to him leaving his dream school, ending up at Michigan um, and fully rethinking the context of his life and doing that with running, feeding back into it along the way the whole time. So I got to meet Mike along this journey and he lifted me up the whole time. It was like, clearly he had made a decision, whether it was I'm not sure what, where exactly it came from, whether it was therapy or just a, you know, a process of growth or whatever, or maybe it took hitting rock bottom to fully realize it, but he leads, uh, with this love. And one of my favorite things of all is he ends all of his presentations now with a slide that says in all caps, you are amazing. And um, even when he submitted his article to science, um, they took out a lot of his references to love, um, because they didn't really like, I guess that wasn't accepted. Um, but it's like, Mike is leaning into love and in that process, not only created great world changing science and has the entire world opened up to him, um, but he has all these people that are just fully right on board with him and that he's pulling along in his slipstream, giving them tailwinds. It's the coolest shit ever. What I really appreciate about this story is the idea that I think people, and you you mentioned this in the science article, have really pushed back against that love and enthusiasm yeah. that he's had, as I think people will do with anything, but especially this topic, because some people are like, well, if you say you're amazing, is everyone amazing? Like there's all these like natural set points that I think people push back against. And he just kept going yeah. through that all. And I think, yeah. I think to me, that's like the best testament of strength of a human. And I'm also curious to see like in this Ted Lasso world, like yeah. the, the Ted Lasso postmodern world, would science actually edit out all those love that's references? True. I feel like this is becoming a cooler thing and becoming a more accepted thing. Yeah. I mean, and when you meet him, you feel that love and he does that for everyone. Um, so I want to finish with a couple of quotes from him. Um, this is, I believe from the Iron article. To be amazing does not require achieving recognition, awards, or major publications. To be amazing is to have the courage to embark on a scary, uncertain adventure and journey into the fast unknown. Um, and then when this slide comes up, many audience members give an unmistakably authentic smile. Some talk to me afterwards, others send messages thanking me. I've even received a few hugs along the way. Of course, some may quietly scoff at the slide, but they too are amazing. What beautiful writing. Yeah. It's and so when, good. When I was watching his dissertation and the 200 some people that were on there, everyone was fucking crying at the end and it was so cool and so weird uh and like the only reason it's not like kind of almost like uh like a sitcom or something like almost uh too much hollywood to me is because i've seen mike i've seen what he does for me i've seen what he does for others um and so you know embracing our own imperfections accepting that we're going to have these low points we're going to have these rest periods we're going to have these injuries whatever it may be that all that stuff adds up into this coherent amazing, beautiful, perfect little hole. Um, and that goes for every single one of us, no matter how low our lowest points are. Um, and actually special shout out to everyone doing PhDs because PhDs seem like they are the hardest things. <laughs> they seem so difficult. They are hard. I just feel like they're kind of like fast in uncertainty yeah. and seeing Mike travel that path of uncertainty and do that with love. I think that's not easy because I think sometimes like when it's uncertain, you want to lean on like the hardcore principles uh -huh. of science. And it's just, it was so cool to see him do a combination of both. But also actually I was reflecting on that. I feel like the exercise addiction conversation that we talked about yeah. could very much apply to work addiction oh. and PhD programs. Like I think there's a ton of parallels there where like some work is great. Yeah. Some work is awesome. Some work really enhances life. And then there's a point in which it's like, is this an addiction? Is this becoming a compulsion? Is this bad for, for life? And I think a lot of PhD students kind of have to toe that line. Yeah. It's tough. So are you saying some work all play? Oh, <laughs> oh look damn. at that. Oh, shit. I'm getting, I'm getting retroactive kudos for naming uh, the coaching company that. Okay. Do you want to skip ahead to day in the life or heat training? What do you want to do? Let's do heat training. Okay, sweet. Let's go all the way down. We have a 
we actually a little behind the scenes we have a lot of great topics lined up that we often end up skipping because we go on i go on tangents about like my love of ketchup um so we're gonna get to lots of really cool questions you sent in um eventually it just might take a few weeks actually for the listeners out there what usually happens is we start reviewing for this podcast and david's like we're gonna do all eight of these points yeah. and i'm like david we're gonna do four of these points and you're like no we're gonna do all eight and then we wind up doing four i are often like it gets cut down so far um i think our our document that we have now is like 108 pages total after you know we, we changed it at some point we probably only talked about 20 of them so we have lots of science lined up for your future and speaking of science we're going to talk about winter heat training i think this is a really fascinating topic um as we think about how we can continue growing in this seasonal shift and we've been loving the sauna recently yeah, so yeah, we get yeah. to pimp the sauna in this process so this question is from jay Initially, I just want to say how much I enjoy the pod and how much I've enjoyed listening to the pod evolve. You're great. Over the last two episodes, you've discussed sauna training as an extremely low cost and potentially high adaptation training method. I live in rural North Texas. So for like eight months of the year, I get lots, and I mean lots of heat adaptation, <laughs> but I'm interested in adding some sauna to my life. I mean, it's fall and it's like 50 degrees in the morning when I run. I'm probably close to hypothermia on a daily basis. <laughs> in an upcoming listener corner, can you describe how to go about incorporating sauna? My real question is, how much is too much? Is there a point of diminishing returns? And what are the basic guidelines? How many times a week, for how long, et cetera? I love that question. And this is a place I've seen pretty shocking anecdotal results in swap um, and more and more of the science has started to back up how heat training might fit into performance even in temperate conditions um but for me personally just for like a side story i was going back through my the springs where i have excelled and there's only been two of seven um whereas in falls i'm really good okay counterpoint there's been a lot more springs <laughs> that you've excelled what metrics are you using to evaluate yourself <laughs> David, okay. give yourself the love and support yeah, you would true. give to a podcast listener. You've I, excelled like six out of seven of those springs, and one of those you were injured. So. Okay. Well, maybe the better way to phrase that is two have been wonderfully butterfly uh, unicorn inducing. Perfect. Um, Thank you. And in both of those were the ones where I was doing more sauna and more heat training in the context of um, of life. And I think that's really relevant because we see that a lot. Um, as people start to get de-acclimated de to heat, um, injury rates might go up. Um, overall like per response to training might go down slightly and this is across a really big data set so it doesn't apply to every single person um but it's pretty cool because heat training isn't just about performance in the heat it's about the underlying adaptations that have to happen to allow you to stay in a sauna or to run outside in heat and it applies everywhere also i have been really into reading books in the sauna yeah, recently and it's i like look forward to going to the sauna so much so like if you're short on reading time go to the sauna because it's oh awesome because you have a convenient excuse to read yeah i actually have the book bravey right next to me right now and it is I mean, it's falling off of its uh, spine because I've been sweating on it so much. Actually, I'm going to read that quote at the very end of this podcast. Perfect. Um, uh, but yeah, so the benefits of heat training, it gets back to the physiology. I mean, one of the most interesting ones is how it changes your sweat rate and the efficiency of sweating, um, which is really relevant at all times because even if the sweat is evaporating, you're always starting that sweat process. Really relevant for electrolytes in your sweat. So more dilute sweat when you're in the sauna, which is really good for things like you know performance and endurance events, even when it's cool out. And the second point is the idea of improvements in vascular function. So we're going to dive into the studies in this because they're actually yeah. some of my favorite studies because they show pretty marked improvements over just a few sauna it's, sessions. And I get, whenever I see a change like that, I get very excited. It's shocking. Approach. It is pretty shocking. But essentially the the kind of the summary of it is that blood volume increases upwards of 15% in a week after doing sauna wow. training, which is, that's a lot. Um, and then actually another point that I think is, is fascinating to kind of the third point is the idea that actually metabolic rate decreases in the sauna um, after like subsequent heat exposures. And 
at first I was kind of confused. I'm like, don't we want to <laughs> stoke the metabolism? Isn't yeah. that great? But really the idea is that the body is adapting to this heat stimulus and is not becoming so impacted by it. And you can think of this in terms of a race, whether the race is at Western States or even a race at like 50 degrees, is that if your body is not so metabolically active from the heat, you're actually conserving your glycogen stores, you're conserving what you're burning. It's it's great. Yeah. Core temp gets shot up through the roof, even in temperate conditions, which is why this the theory behind why the studies on temperate conditions are showing performance increases in some instances is that even when it's cool out, I mean, as we all know, if you warm up in long pants in a jacket, you're like sweating. And in, then when you think about going really hard, I mean, that's happening on the cellular level. And that gets back to some thermal tolerance that actually happens at the cellular level, which might get back to epigenetic responses or even protein expression, like heat shock proteins and things like that. All of it leads to this fascinating combination of factors that can improve performance across the board and I think improve health too. And I think actually health is, a, we, can, we can end on that in terms of like our summary of improvements, yeah. but the immune system, there's some interesting studies out, out there about the benefits of the sauna on the immune system. And I, I did some deep dives into these and I was, <laughs> I was very stoked on this. So white blood cells, so um, they've shown some increases in white blood cells, also some increases in monocytes and neutrophils, which are kind of the body's like first line immune defenses. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm sitting in the sauna, I love thinking about my immune system, just doing magical things in there. Yeah. It's great. Well, maybe that immune system magic can be counterbalanced by the people that are coughing and grunting <laughs> all of their germs that's all a, over the place. That's exactly the, the decision calculus yeah. I make because you're sitting next to someone who's just like grunting and just pouring sweat yeah. and you're like kind of inching away. Like, I don't know if this is great right now, but needless to say, we're looking into a home sauna because yeah, yeah. we've been in some very crowded 24-hour fitness saunas. Yeah. I'm trying to think about like, I guess using the sauna as it relates to your immune system is kind of like putting up really like a really big moat outside of your your castle, but then just like giving the attackers to the castle like a bunch of weapons at the same time. Actually, kind of like the US's strategy in Afghanistan. Wow, that was all over the place and I like it. Um, <laughs> but another side point on this, I got kind of grossed out. You know how people just like pour sweat in there and there's yeah. all these like sweat marks? I got really grossed out about it. But then I realized that sweat's actually sterile as long as it's coming off clean skin. Oh, so yeah. that's kind of cool. Well, well, skin's not clean. Yeah, that, like me. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, kind of fucked. Perhaps we are the problem. We yes. are projecting our own issues. Okay, so diving or t taking a quick step into the blood volume vascular stuff. This is the stuff that Megan and I are just like all about. This okay. gets us all hot and bothered. My One of my favorite studies of all time, because of just like the magnitude of impact. So 2015 study, they looked at four 30-minute exposures in a 188-degree sauna after exercise, and they found that blood plasma volume increased 17.8% on average. <sighs> that is so high. It is so high. Um, and I mean, think about 17.8% is a huge liquid content. Actually, probably changes like body composition a little bit too, when you think about more liquid being your blood. Good thing is that over time, that should also raise hematocrit, raise your red blood cell, raise your overall hemoglobin mass. Um, a 2007 study in the Journal of Science and Medicine and Sport um, did the similar type of protocol for 12 exposures over 21 days and found a major performance in time trial performance in temperate conditions, 1.9%. Um, and they theorized that that was related to blood volume expansion. So it's not just sauna, right? Yeah. Other studies have looked at infrared sauna and hot tub. And actually, yeah. I would love to dive into the mechanisms of those and like how people can think about choosing. But one study looked at the difference between infrared sauna and dry sauna, also called finished sauna, and yeah. found actually no performance differences between the two, which I thought was interesting, but we'll have some caveats and some yeah. asterisks on and there, that. There haven't actually been that many studies on no. science, which is weird because everyone's putting them in their house nowadays. And then with the hot tub, um, there are two studies, one from 2015, one from 2018, that had athletes submerge themselves from the neck down in 104 degree temperatures for 40 minutes um, and found many of the same blood plasma volume um, expansion increases that the other studies did. It's a lot of time and a very hot temperature. And I wonder what that would do with other uh, interactions as it relates to like, I don't know, 
heat shock proteins or sweating or whatever else that, that we're going to get into later. Um, I would just say, be careful with all of this stuff before we get into any more. The The risks are pretty high and we'll get into that in our protocol. Also, 40 minutes in the hot tub, that's a long time. Yeah. I ain't got 40 minutes. No. Yeah. Also, if I'm submerged from the neck down, I can't hold a book and that makes me very sad. Yeah. I have to do like an audio book or something. But actually, that's a good, a good side point before we get into everything else is that none of these study protocols are dogma, right? Like they're all within a spectrum of benefits. So perhaps the study protocols put the point way off in a very high level of like people doing long-term exposures, but you get some benefit at even small ones. So if you don't have a hot tub and you just take, you know, a 10 minute hot bath every night, that also helps probably. Um, and similar with like sauna or heat exposure, like a little bit is fine too. And in that context, I would love to go through the difference between hot tub, infrared sauna and dry sauna, because I actually haven't seen this highlighted much anywhere. No. And I constantly have the question. I'm like, well, what's best is, you know, what's, what's the protocol for each. And so let's break it down. So hot tub. So kind of the pros of the hot tub convenient. Yes. There's tons of hot tubs everywhere. Easy to use. Um, they're also fun. I think yeah. it's really fun to sit in a hot tub in the jets. It feels to me more pleasant and, than being in a I sauna. Mean, most people have baths that could work similarly, yeah, but you can exactly. probably just make sure you don't get it too hot. I feel like our hot bath could probably get to like 130 degrees, roast us like a chicken. Well, the thing about the hot tub is they can't get as hot as dry saunas and infrared saunas. So something yeah. to think about. The other thing about the hot tub is also the idea that when you're sweating, so sweating is a compensatory mechanism that we use to cool our bodies. Yeah. That sweat just dissipates in the water when you think about it. Yeah. And there hasn't been any studies out there, but to me, that seems counterintuitive because if we're sweating a ton and it's not actually cooling our body because it's dissipating into the water. Does that change the yeah. benefit that we get from sweating? I don't know the answer to it, but that's a question that naturally uh, I mean, comes to my mind. It's super interesting. And my only bad heat experience was with hot, with hot tub slash hot bath. Um, so I'm not even joking around when I say I boiled myself like some potatoes. So I did it after a run in the winter thinking, okay, well, this is how I'm going to do it. I don't have time to go to the gym, whatever. Um, and I didn't stay in that long. And I, But I started sweating. And then all of a sudden when I got out, I was just like, Fuck, I'm gonna die. Like I got, you know, we, I'm sure some people. <laughs> you kind of looked like you were gonna die. Well, too. you weren't even home until later, and so you were you were coming home like an hour later. And I think I texted you. Like I was just like, Megan, I'm really worried right now. What do I do? So I was just lying on the floor, curled up. So be extremely careful with that. With the water submersion, I think. Also, the other place I had a slightly bad experience was in a wet sauna. So wet sauna. That sounds a little nasty. A steam room, um, you mean? Steam room. Yes. <laughs> yes. Every sauna can be a wet sauna if you have some fun in there. Um, but. Uh, yeah, that was also my only bad experience. So maybe there's something too with the moisture changes the way bodies respond to heat that could be negative for health. So just be careful. Awesome. Also, a lot of the hot tub studies are longer protocols, as we mentioned with 40 minutes and this girl, I don't got 40 minutes. So yeah, don't yeah. got 40 minutes. Also like pruny yeah. ah, too many prunes exactly um and then okay so second second one is infrared sauna and infrared saunas actually generally have lower heat than dry saunas so infrared saunas are generally between 100 to 150 degrees fahrenheit yeah. and then dry saunas are generally 160 to 190 depending on where you go and the protocols um what i find interesting about infrared sauna the mechanism kind of gives me the creeps yeah. do you agree okay so when infrared saunas come up, I feel kind of like someone in the 1600s that's like, she's a witch, burn her alive. But in relation to the, which I know is ridiculous. Um, I'm almost like those people that are like microwaves kill you. Uh, but IR saunas do kind of creep me out as we're thinking about maybe getting our own. That being said, tons of good research. Yeah, on yeah, it, it, like it amazing great. research, but something about it just creeps me out a little bit. So essentially the way they work, so infrared light penetrates the skin and it reaches the soft tissue of the body. And that provides this heating mechanism that occurs from the inside out to increase the core temperature. Yeah. And that's kind of what but that description just kind of weirds me out a little bit. It's fantastic though. Athletes have enjoyed them 
for many years and great research on them. And we've had athletes excel at Western States using infrared saunas. So clearly it is working a little bit from performance end too. And people who prefer infrared saunas over traditional saunas in terms of research cite the idea that because of this mechanism, infrared saunas actually directly impact ATP and molecular structures of the body. Actually, <laughs> that to me is a red flag. I'm like, I don't know if I want this infrared light to be directly impacting the ATP yeah. and, and cellular structures of my body. Whereas the, the dry saunas do that secondarily. So ATP is impacted as a secondary mechanism yeah. of, of dry saunas. So I think that's just kind of take, you can kind of take your wisdom there. There need to be more studies on this. I, I, I got really frustrated trying to look it up. Like there was the review study, but then you out at the studies within the review study, none of it really was long-term. None of it was robust. None of it made these leaps with hematocrit and red blood cell counts either. So I think the jury's still out. That being said, like, you know, if you, I think a lot of the at-home saunas are infrared and people like them. So I think it's a great option. I was going to say they're very accessible. They heat up fast actually, which is another oh, benefit. Um, so then ending with dry saunas or finished saunas, they can be the most challenging to find. So especially during COVID, like sometimes a lot of athletes have to go to gyms to access these. They can, because they're hotter temperatures can take a while to yeah. heat up more expensive if you want to put one in your home. Um, and then the way they work is by conduction heat. So it presents a heat load on the skin surface area, yeah. and then it impacts the, the ATP and molecular structures, as I was talking about the infrared sauna directly impacting. So I, I personally prefer dry saunas. I think they just feel good to me. It's traditional. A lot I of like studies them. are on that. A lot of studies are on them, but I, we've seen athletes have success with every single approach in many different protocols in different yeah. ways. And so I think it's just kind of about finding what works for you and what you're comfortable and with. And what's available. I mean, that's I think true. that's mm -hmm. often the hardest part. Like we go to 25 fitness because they have a big old convection sauna. Um, and we're, we're hoping to build one here. Actually, if there's anyone listening that has like an in with saunas. Uh, perhaps we can get a kickback on this on this podcast episode. Okay, so getting to the question asked by um, the amazing listener, we want to tell you our protocol. Um, this is based on the studies and also based on our anecdotes that we have in our on our team. Um, our general rule is twenty to thirty minutes with a hard cap at thirty minutes, um, and there can be a such thing as too much. I think that where we like athletes to really focus is their heart rate. So I've loved having a heart rate monitor on just, you know, the wrist heart rate is very reliable in, the, in that setting. And for me, 120 is a hard cap. If I, if my heart rate starts going over 120, get out. And um, I think once you start going over that, you're talking about a stress introduction that might be pulling in the opposite direction of training and cause major negative health consequences down the road. I don't think there's any benefit based on the studies in someone that can stay in a sauna for an hour and almost kill themselves. Like, I think you're just going to cause breakdown in other areas that will make it counterproductive altogether. I think the other thing too, is we often recommend athletes do this post-training and that's yeah. where a lot of the studies are done is immediately post-exercise. And for me, I find actually, I have a hard time. If I've done a really hard workout, yeah. I look down at my watch and like 10, 15 minutes into the sauna, my heart rate is already pretty high. Yeah. And so I think it also depends on like, what's the context you're going in at and what is the, the workout that you've done beforehand. Yeah. So I think the 20 to 30 minute guideline is a good rule. Also pay attention to the actual temperature. So our sauna at um, 24 hour fitness, our sauna, as if we own it. Oh, we, uh, we own that shit. We definitely claimed it with bodily fluids at this point. Um, our sauna is 162 or something, which is at the very low end of these. A lot of them get, I mean, the studies we were talking about, that was 190 or one uh, to 200. Um, some can be even hotter. So pay attention to that too. Like you might just be in your sauna for 10 minutes and get all the same benefits and, you know, not turn yourself into like a terrible, nasty prune that's going to die. The other thing that we've seen too, is it can actually be, be beneficial to avoid cooling off after. So a lot of people like taking these cold showers yeah. post sauna. And I think actually the, the better adaptations come if you allow yourself, you can take a warm shower to get that sweat off your body, but avoiding the cold shower for about 30 minutes after. And we also give the cue to, to avoid rapid rehydration for yeah. 30 minutes after as well. That way your body can continue the adaptation process. Yeah. So the blood volume stimulus really relies on 
on you not letting your body come back to room temperature on its own, not throwing yourself into like the cold pool, which, you know, that might have its other benefits perhaps. But when we're talking specifically about blood volume, um, not, not the time to do it. So let your body come back to normal. I like to take a really hot shower. And then when I get home, start sipping on some water, have some noon, something fun like that. Ooh, fun. I thought yeah. you were going to add like a little fancy, like cocktail in there, like a mocktail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a Cosmo. Actually, you are really good at making drinks. David's got the, the mocktail game down pat. I like um, and then in terms of frequency, we often say, so starting out with, um, going every day for the first three to five days, that parallels a lot of the benefits that we've seen in the study and allows the body to get adapted in terms of heat shock proteins. And then from there going, about every third day or every other day thereafter, just to make sure that it's not this overall, like too much stress on the body. Because sometimes we've seen that like, this is a stress, it's a training stress. Yeah. And if you layer it in all of a sudden every day in a period of hard training, it could be too much. For the yeah. Body. And we didn't talk about the science of de-acclimation from heat, but uh, once you build it up, it actually declines at just like 2% per day. So as you think, if you think you get your heat adaptation all the way up to 100%, you can miss a few weeks and you're still pretty heat acclimated and you're still getting a lot of the benefits in the background. So it's not something you have to always do and you're just like chained to the sauna. Um, it, you, you can be a lot more flexible with it and get a lot of these benefits. And I think the reason I want to talk about it in winter in particular is because I think what I've seen is that perhaps that blood volume expansion that we're talking about is relevant to how the body heals itself. So not just like performance, even if there are no performance increases or performance changes, I think there might be some relation to how all the healing factors in the body get to working muscles, get to things in the, could also be seeing like vitamin D exposure or just cold weather causing more injuries. But I've seen an athlete that do this generally lower injury rates. Well, I see that for me personally. Like if I have a niggle, I'm like, I must get to the sauna. Yeah. That might help. Um, granted, I'm also like that with ice fats too. So it's, it's, it really depends on the stimulus. But I think as we talk about this conversation though, it makes me think of a few asterisks. Yeah. So one is a lot of these studies are done at sea level. And I think when you combine the stress of altitude and sauna, I think it's still a little bit unknown That's how true. people are going to respond. And that might be individual yeah. too, and depending upon like baseline iron levels, baseline hematocrit levels. And so I think there's a lot of different considerations. And then I think the other strong asterisk I would add too is a lot of these studies are done in male athletes, unfortunately. And for female athletes, a lot of variations surrounding menstrual cycle. Um, obviously, sauna is not great during pregnancy. So there's just a lot of different considerations. And I think it's just important to highlight those too. Yeah. It can be a form of birth control, perhaps. If you actually, I don't know. I was just researching that for yeah. this this topic. It does seem like newer research indicates that sauna might be okay um, during pregnancy, but it's just like I, I feel like at that point, why do it? Why why like take the risk? Well, my sperm are like those rats that just like run around in circles, circles, circles <laughs> until they start to get things curved all over. Uh, do you want to move on to Listener Corner? Let's do it. That's a great way to, to wrap up the main part of the podcast episode. I love Listener Corner. So this one is from I. Um, it's on squats. I says, guys, some of your episodes need to come with a warning. Do not listen while doing something serious. I was listening to episode 71 and was exactly halfway into a squat <laughs> when you dropped the fuck Athlon bomb. And I laughed so hard. Had no chance of standing up and completing the rep. Had to yell for help from a stranger who came up, who came and took the bar off. Thanks so much for making Wednesday weight training bearable every week and making me get weird looks from people when I laugh at what you say. But I think I'll put you on pause next time I do squats. <laughs> Regards, an ultra runner that hates the gym. What a great sign off. That's the best thing ever. Also, I love that I is doing squats. Uh, weight room Wednesday. That's awesome. Yeah. I think my uh, my parents would get a kick out of something random I said, causing someone to laugh. They'll be like, okay, that stress we had as when we were young, <laughs> when he was young, all worth it now. Um, okay. Last one. Do you want to read it or should you I? You got this. Oh, it's, oh, you sure? Yeah, you got it. Okay. Well, it's actually called We Got This. I've been listening to your podcast for a while, and it's one of my favorites because of the real science and authentic vibes, but I'm writing to let you know how much I've gotten out of it. I've managed chronic pain with an unknown cause for most of my life. 
PTs, orthopedists, chiros, ETC have tried to diagnose the cause and fix the problem. And I'd always been told the same thing that wasn't actually helpful. I'd given up on the idea that I would ever get real help. And I resigned myself to having to unsuccessfully manage this forever. I listened to the episode where you, Megan, uh, described your autoimmune condition and the symptoms that led you to seek care. I'd been considering seeing a rheumatologist for a while, just to rule it out, if nothing else. But when I felt like you were talking about my body in that episode, I finally made the appointment in an effort to make this, and in an effort to make this very long story shorter, I was diagnosed with enclosed spondylitis, um, and it makes so many things finally make sense. I have a great team of doctors, and I felt better than I have in years. I just wanted to say thank you for your transparency and for being such an inspiration. Because of your story, I knew that I could keep running, even with AS, and I wouldn't have ever even gotten here without the push from that episode. Thank you doesn't seem like enough, but thank you. You rock, especially Addy Dog. That one, I got goosebumps. Do you remember the, the initial one? I one? did. I think it just because it's a medical thing, we oh, should keep oh. it HIPAA, David. Yeah, yeah. I actually just deleted it. That's as HIPAA? You were, That's actually HIPAA. You never know. We could trace it back. But really, my heart goes out to this listener. Like, so glad to be able to share this journey with you. Also, like, I've learned a lot of people who have had ankylosing spondylitis have reached out to me. And yeah. I've learned a lot about training yeah. and different protocols for, for this autoimmune process and just grateful for it. Yeah, and I was talking to the listener, and we have a pro athlete on the team that has ankylosing spondylitis and is amazing. And so I think that gets back to autoimmune conditions, health stuff more generally. It's like, maybe we can all be a little bit like that three-legged uh, pirate golden retriever, which is like, yeah, we do have our limitations. Sometimes it's like wearing it on our paw, like that animal. And other times it's things can't, people can't see, but we can still be athletic monsters that run and play and jump and do all these fun things. So heck yeah, that listener, heck yeah, all you guys, we freaking love you. Thank you so much. Uh, rate, subscribe, review, whatever you do to podcasts, you are the best. Have an amazing day. Bye. Woo.